Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege to be with you this morning on Mission Sunday. I wish I could be here tonight. Um, I'm, I'm unfortunately unable to, but I, I hope that it's a, just a wonderful time together, fellowship, and a blessed time of fundraising as well. Uh, you know, it's an even bigger privilege, though, to have been asked to preach before you on Mission Sunday. I'm really thankful for the opportunity. Missions, it's actually one of my favorite topics to either teach or preach on. And it all goes back to when I was a senior in high school. Uh, it was back in 2009. I was on a short-term service trip in Mexico uh, with my youth group. And we would build houses during the day. And then at night, we got some really incredible missions-related teaching. And uh, the ministry where we were, they were really focused on unreached people groups. If you're not familiar with that term, those are ethno-linguistic groups where the percentage of Christians is so small that the church, if there even is one, lacks the resources to evangelize the rest of the group. And I remember sitting there in, in Tijuana, Mexico, and I'm like learning about these people groups. I'm learning about something called the 1040 window. That's a kind of rectangular area of North Africa, Asia, the Middle East, between 10 and 40 degrees north latitude, where most unreached people groups are located. And I'm sitting there hearing all of this, and my heart was just breaking as I learned about the lack of Christians, the lack of churches, the lack of Bibles, especially Bibles in the language of the people themselves. My heart, it, it was just breaking as those teaching told us that you know many people would live their entire life in the 1040 window they'd never even meet a christian and therefore they'd never hear the gospel well since then 13 years have gone by that's you know decently long amount of time is the situation surrounding the 1040 window any different has it maybe improved Let me read off some numbers for you. These are estimates from the Joshua Project. Uh, According to them, there are still 7,387 unreached people groups in the world. That's about 3.3 billion people, which makes up about 42% of the world's population. What's more, most of these people groups and people live in countries where being a Christian is illegal. And persecution rates are highest against Christians. So the reality still of the 1040 window is that 40% of humans lack access to the gospel to the extent that many of them will be born, live, and die without ever hearing how to be saved. And at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, how in the world are we going to get the gospel there? Like, what, are, what are we going to do? What can we do? How can we access, how can we reach these people groups? And it feels daunting. And it feels sometimes, I think, impossible when we see some of these numbers, these statistics about global missions. But I don't bring them up this morning to, like, depress us. That's, that's not why I bring these numbers up this morning. Rather, I bring up these numbers because I want us to start with the problem. 
I think so often when it comes to missions or even just like personal evangelism, you know, just local evangelism, I, I think so often it can just feel to us so impossible because we're looking at the problem through human eyes, right? We're kind of looking at these things through our human eyes and we're forgetting a very important component to the equation, which of course is God. We need to look at these problems through divine perspective. And so this is precisely why when Stephen asked me to preach this morning, out of all the like wonderful missions texts I could have chosen, Matthew 28, Acts 1, Romans 10, so many great texts. But instead, I chose Exodus 18, verses 1 to 12. Because as, this, as we read this passage, and as we'll soon see, the, the passage, it's going to give us great hope for God's power and sovereignty over the salvation of all nations. Such that when we look at unreached people group statistics, or even just our, our coworker in the office, or something like that, as we think about evangelism, we are going to have hope and confidence, not in our own abilities, but in God's ability and power of God's word to change hearts and turn people and people groups to himself. So I have a simple message for you this morning. If you're like a note taker, I'd invite you to write this sentence down. Everything else I say is really going to flow from it. When the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people believe. When the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people believe. This morning, we're going to examine this passage in three movements. Really, we're going to see the testimony of God's salvation move through someone in three ways. And so in verses one to six, we're going to see some hearsay. In verses seven to eight, we're going to see a testimony. And in verses nine to 12, we'll see a response. Hearsay, testimony, response. And all of it is going to show us that when the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people believe. That's where we're headed this morning. So let's begin by looking at some hearsay. Take a look back at, or actually we haven't read it yet, I apologize. Take a look with me at Exodus chapter 18, verse 1. If you haven't turned there already, I'd invite you to turn there now. We'll we'll be kind of in and out of the passage uh, throughout our time in God's word. Exodus 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel as people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Well, as the passage begins, we're immediately introduced to this character named Jethro, who I'm sure all of us immediately think of when we think of the book of Exodus, right? Like, oh yeah, Jethro's in that book. No, of course not. Maybe some of you are like, who is Jethro? I've never heard of him before, right? Let me give you just a little bit of background on Jethro. 
So back in Exodus chapter 2, Moses, he, he actually commits murder in the land of Egypt. And so he runs away because like his Pharaoh's like angry with him because he murdered someone. So he runs away to Midian. And there in Midian, Moses meets uh, a girl named Zipporah. And uh, he helps her out at a well. And Zipporah's dad is Jethro. And so uh, Moses and Zipporah end up getting married. And Jethro then becomes Moses' father-in-law. And then he kind of disappears from the narrative of Exodus. We, we, you know, it kind of focuses in on Moses and what he's doing. He goes back to Egypt, all that. Jethro kind of disappears. But now, chapter 18, Jethro's back. He's back on the scene. And we really quickly, right in verse 1, we learn a few things about Jethro. We get kind of like almost this like resume for Jethro. So first of all, immediately we're told he's the priest of Midian. So, like, he's not just your ordinary guy kind of showing up in the Israelite camp. Uh, he, he has a fairly significant role among the Midianites. In fact, the language that the text uses here to describe him, it makes it sound actually like Jethro may or may not be the, the priest of Midian. Like, he's the, the main priest of Midian. Jethro, the priest of Midian. He's like the top dog, the, the leader of their religious system. So Jethro is a big deal, and he is a big follower of Midianite gods. I mean, he is like a priest of Midian. That's the first thing we learn about Jethro. Second, we learn that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. In fact, the passage doesn't stop telling us that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. I wonder if you noticed that. I think it's eight times. Obviously, I only read you know half of it, but throughout all 12 verses, I think it's eight times Jethro's, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Like, he's never just called Jethro. It's always Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Now, that might just be like a title of respect or something like that. But I wonder, I wonder if the repeated use of of father-in-law, I wonder if it doesn't highlight Jethro's status as an outsider. Right? So not only is he like a priest from another nation serving other gods, but then he also is only there because he's related to Moses by marriage, right? He's an in-law. He's not quite Moses' family. Like, they kind of are, but he's Moses' father-in-law. So Jethro, he's, he's both religiously an outsider, but he's also relationally an outsider. And we're going to want to keep that in mind, actually, as, as we move through this passage. Jethro, he, he is an outsider, and he's kind of coming into the camp of Israel. Well, the last thing we're told in verse 1 is that Jethro heard everything God had done for Moses and for Israel's people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So what exactly did God do for Moses and Israel? Another way of thinking about that question, what happened in Exodus chapters 1 to 17? You know, maybe you're here this morning, you're not super familiar with the narrative of Exodus. Maybe it's been a while since you've read it. Let me give you just a brief recap. We're kind of jumping right into the middle of the book here. What did God do for Israel? Well, the Israelites, they'd been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. That is a long time. 400 years. Wow. And so God, after 400 years, he remembered the Israelite people and he sent Moses to Pharaoh And Moses comes in, he demands that Pharaoh free the Israelite people. And Pharaoh says no, right? He refuses to free the slaves. 
And so then God sends plague after plague. He sends 10 plagues on the people of Egypt and on the land and on Pharaoh. And, and it really like displays God's power over Pharaoh and God's power over all creation. Plague after plague hitting the land of Egypt. And finally, the 10th plague comes and it was the worst plague of all. God actually tells Moses, an angel of death is going to just run through the land of Egypt and, and kill every firstborn son. And so this sounds like really scary and bad, but God actually tells Moses, look, if you smear lamb's blood on a doorpost, like a sacrificial lamb, the angel will pass over your house. And so it happened on the first Passover that the firstborn sons, the firstborn of all the animals and livestock of Israel was protected because they listened to Moses and they smeared lamb's blood on the doorpost. But it wasn't so pretty for the Egyptians. And it really kind of took this to get Pharaoh to finally let Israel go. After the 10th plague, he says, fine, leave, get out of here. But Pharaoh changes his mind. And so he chases down the Israelites to the point where Israel is stuck between like a rock and a hard place. They got the Red Sea on one side and then Moses' army like bearing down on them in chariots on the other side. And it's like, wait, why did you like free us if this is going to happen, God? And so God performs a miracle and the Red Sea splits and Israel walks through on dry ground. And then the Israelite army thinks, oh, well, it's dry. Let's go follow them. And they go into the sea and God closes it and swallows up their army. And if this was all that would happen, this would be pretty amazing. But then it actually gets better because Israelite, now they're like in the wilderness and they're wandering around and they're like, hey, we're like hungry and thirsty. And so God provides water from rocks for them and he provides bread and quail from heaven. It just appears for the people. And then in chapter 17, right before our passage, the passage right before it, the Amalekites, they say, hey, like, look at these guys, let's go attack them. And God protects the people and and fights for them and defeats the Amalekites. What did God do for Moses and Israel? What didn't he do? Like, oh my goodness, he saved them from slavery. He protected them from plagues and armies. He provided for them. And Jethro heard about it. Of course he heard about it. I mean, what happened in Egypt, it would have been big news. Traders, passing caravans, Egyptian refugees fleeing the plagues. They would have passed through Midian and told Jethro about what was happening. He would have been hearing kind of these rumors and these bits and pieces of news. Even way back then, news traveled fast. And Jethro heard all that God had done for Israel. Well, there's a lot of information packed and nestled into that first verse. If verse 1 tells us kind of like who Jethro is, verses 2 and 6, they really just explain why he was coming to meet with Israel. We're not going to spend a lot of time on those verses. If you have questions about them, you can feel free to come up and ask me after uh, it really just explains why is Jethro coming? At some point, Moses, he had sent Zipporah, his wife, and his two sons back to Jethro, back to Midian. We're not told why. We're not told when. It could have been before kind of all the plagues started. Moses was like trying to protect them. 
where the Israelites are at right now geographically was close to Midian. So he might have just kind of been like, hey, we're in the neighborhood. Why don't you go say hi to Grandpa? We're, we don't know. And therefore, we don't know if Zipporah like, kind of told Jethro about what was going on. We don't know if she was there waiting with Jethro. Like, what is happening? Is Moses okay? We just don't know. What we do know is that Jethro is coming to see Moses. He's bringing Moses' family with him. And, and at this point, we know Jethro is it's surely intrigued by what he's hearing, right? I mean, wait, Egypt, like their army got destroyed, the Amalekites got defeated. He is intrigued. And I think, like, this makes sense, right? Like, have you ever heard a rumor or some sort of news, and you're just kind of like, wait a minute, like, I need to go to the source on that. I need some more info on this. I, I, I need to find out more, right? We've all been there. Maybe even you're here this morning and you're not actually a Christian, but maybe you can really relate to Jethro right now. Like Jethro's curiosity is piqued. And maybe that's you. Maybe not like, you know, with what's going on with Israel and Egypt, but maybe your curiosity is piqued about Jesus and Christianity and the church. And you're just kind of like, what is this all about? Like, why do you guys meet here and listen to someone talk about this old book and sing? Friend, if that's you, don't stifle that curiosity. Explore that curiosity. Ask questions. Oh, who, who, whoever you came with this morning, or myself, Stephen, we would love to talk with you more about Jesus and about Christianity. Friend, I am convinced there is nothing you need more than to know what it would look like for you to make Jesus your Savior and Lord. If you are curious about Jesus, Please don't stifle that curiosity. Reach out to someone. Talk with someone about that. Jethro, his, his curiosity is surely piqued. That's what hearsay does. It whets the appetite. It makes us want more. But for someone to be truly satisfied, we need testimony. We need to hear it from the source. And that's exactly what Jethro does. That's exactly what Jethro gets. He gets testimony. Take a look at verse 7 with me, and let's see second, a testimony. Verses 7 and 8. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. All right, so there's kind of this nice reunion here. Moses and Jethro presumably hadn't seen each other in a while. Kind of come out, say hi, make some small talk. Probably was an interesting small talk conversation. Like, hey, Moses, how have you been? Oh, you know, like walked through a sea on dry ground. And um, it kind of just makes me laugh when I read verse 7. But verse 8 is what I really want you to see. That's what I really want you to put your eyes on. So the phrasing is really similar to verse 1, right? Like, there's some really similar phrasing here. But what's different is that here in verse 8, it's not hearsay anymore. This is Moses, like, telling Jethro firsthand information, right? Moses tells Jethro how God had rescued and helped Israel uh, despite this hardship and what had come upon them on the way. He's, He's telling them about deliverance and all these things. And I love the language here, right? It's language of testimony. 
Moses, he, he recounted, he retold, he narrated, he, he, de- he detailed, he told Jethro his story. And it's not actually just his story. He told Jethro the story of God's work in saving Moses and saving the Israelite people. Christian, is that how you think of your testimony? Not just your story, although it certainly is, but the story of God's salvation in your life. Christian, you have a testimony like Moses. You have a story of God's salvation working in your life. And you might be sitting there and you might be thinking to yourself, man, like, yeah, I have a story, but it's not as good as Moses' story. And okay, to be fair, his story has some like pretty remarkable details. That's true. But friend, if you are in Christ, if you've been saved by the gospel, your story is actually way better than Moses' story. I mean, okay, yeah, like your story, it's not about being freed from Egypt, but it is about how God brought you from death to life. Okay, your story, it's not about like God parting a sea, but it is about God becoming man in the person of Christ Jesus. Okay, yeah, your story is not about like hardships of wilderness wanderings and like miracles, water from rocks, things like that. But your story is the story of Jesus hanging on the cross to die for your sins. Your, your story is about the miracle of God changing your heart and giving you new life in Jesus Friend, your story is the tale of God's power and love culminating in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead so that if anyone puts their faith in Christ and turns from their sin, they can be saved. That's your story. And some of you, you were so far gone from God and he brought you back. And some of you, you're, you're like me. You grew up in the church and you, you knew Christ from a young age and you feel like, nah, my testimony isn't that great. But friend, you were dead in your sins and God made you alive. God, like the creator of all things, loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you and gave you life in Christ and you will be risen with him on the last day. That's your story, friend. Oh, Moses' story is pretty good. But Christian, yours is much more amazing. Don't take your testimony for granted, Christian. Don't take your testimony for granted. Don't forget that the story of the gospel is the story of your salvation, of God working in your life And now you get to share that with others. I mean, I I feel like it's so remarkable how fast Moses took this opportunity to tell Jethro what God had done for Israel. He's like, hey, Jethro, how's it going? Hey, get to Right? He does it like immediately. Oh, we should be like Moses. We should be like Moses. You know, I'm I'm not going to spend like a ton of time here, but just as an aside... If you're anything like me, I wonder if evangelism can feel really daunting. 
I feel like so often when, when Christians, we think about evangelism and we feel like we have to like know all the answers and like have like every like potential question or argument someone could bring up. We have to have like the answer to that. And we have to kind of have this like amazing knowledge of apologetics. And if we're going to evangelize, that means we got to be ready to just convince someone and be able to out-argue them and know everything. And so we have to be like all really prepared for all of these things. And we set this really high bar for ourselves. But actually, I think evangelism is as simple as what we see in this passage. Evangelism might include some of those things. It might include answering questions and coming up with good arguments and things like that. But I think at its most basic level, I think evangelism is simply telling someone what God has done for you in Christ. That's it. It's just sharing your story. It's sharing the story of God's kindness to you with someone else. I don't know about you, but the simplicity of evangelism, when we think about it like that, it's really freeing. Right? Like, all I need to do is tell someone what God did for me in Jesus. That's it? I can do that. You can do that. We can do that, right? These two verses, I hope they're so encouraging in how they display the simplicity of evangelism. That doesn't mean we don't prepare. That doesn't mean we don't study apologetics or theology or or anything like that. No, of course, we, we can do that. But friends, there's not like this bar of theological knowledge that you need to surpass in order to evangelize someone. Like we don't have to like pass a test and get like our evangelism license. Now, if you've been saved by Christ, tell people. That's the bar. The bar is just being saved. Now go out and tell other people what God's done for you. All right, that was a bit of an aside. I hope that's encouraging. I'm certain there are people in this room. Maybe it's just me, but I hope other people who needed to hear that. I know I did. Well, we've seen hearsay kind of peak the curiosity and the interest of Jethro. We've seen Moses share his testimony with Jethro. So now let's look third and finally at a response. Take a look at verse 9 with me. This is awesome. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Well, the testimony of Moses had reached the nations. Jethro, an outsider, a Midianite priest, hears what God had done for Israel. What's his response? Oh, it is a surprising, amazing exclamation of praise for the one true God, I mean, isn't this incredible? Like, okay, if all we had was verse 9, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, right? Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. He had delivered them. Like, okay, yeah, it's not a big deal. It's his son-in-law. He's, he's happy for him, right? Okay, yeah. He's glad Moses is alive and safe. His daughter's probably happy because Moses is safe, right? We would expect that. 
And then even verse 10, it's like, okay, you know, what, you know, Jethro says, blessed be the Lord. Okay, it's not like that big of a deal. But then verse 11, now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods. Religious leaders don't usually say that about other gods. But Jethro's not done. Then he makes sacrifices to God. He's like burnt offering sacrifice. And then on top of that, he shares a meal with the leaders of Israel. And you did not misread it before God in God's presence. Most translations write. There are not too many people in the Bible who got to sit in God's presence. In fact, culturally at this time, this represented peace between those eating. Jethro is at peace with the God of Israel. Jethro, the priest of Midian, an outsider from a different nation and people and religion, hears of God's salvation, hears of what God did for Israel and becomes a worshiper of Yahweh. When the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people believe. In one sense, we shouldn't be surprised by this, though. Because this is actually the pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament. As God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be a blessing to all nations is fulfilled, we we see the nations break into God's people all throughout the Old Testament. God, he was never just the God of Israel. He has always been the God of all mankind. And so we see Rahab in the book of Joshua say to the Israelite spies, We have heard what God did for you in Egypt and how he delivered you. Please save us from the coming judgment on Jericho. So Rahab and her family become worshipers of Yahweh. She's in Jesus' genealogy even. Flipping further in the Bible, the queen of Sheba hears of what God has done for Solomon and visits and sees the glory of the kingdom of Israel and says, blessed be the Lord your God. He put you, Solomon, on the throne because of his eternal love for Israel. Ruth, Naaman, the list goes on and on. Even actually in Exodus 12, towards the end of that chapter, we read that many Egyptians left Egypt and joined the people of Israel because of what they saw God do. The nation of Israel was always meant to be a light to the nations, a beacon of God's majesty and greatness and love precisely because when the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people believe. This is what makes the books of the prophets, the exile, so utterly heartbreaking. Israel failed at their task. They weren't a light to the nations. They became like the nations. They didn't tell of God's salvation. They took on false gods and idols of the nations around them. We needed something better than the kingdom of Israel. And we got something better in the person of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, everything changed. Jesus, he didn't just come for Israel He came for all nations, starting with Israel. And we know this because some of the last things Jesus said were go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1. When the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, not the exodus, not the parting of the Red Sea, but when the nations hear the testimony of the gospel of God's salvation in Jesus Christ, people believe. And we can take this to the bank because we see it in Scripture. We see it at Pentecost in Acts 2. We see it actually all throughout the book of Acts as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. And we get a promise that people will believe in a picture of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 7 when John writes, After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, I hope you see that the whole Bible is the story of God's salvation for all nations, all mankind, all people groups, all languages. From Genesis, where God promises that he will bless the nations through Abraham, all the way to Revelation, where a choir from every tongue and tribe sings praises to Jesus. The entirety of scripture declares that when the testimony of God's salvation reaches the nations, people believe. I hope you're convinced of God's power to save. I hope you're encouraged by God's sovereignty over the nations. But it begs the question, like, what's next? Where do, where do we go from there? If we kind of know this theological truth about God, what does that mean for us, practically speaking? And so as we close, let me just offer three brief kind of final points of application for us. First, support missionaries to the least reached peoples. Now, let me first say, we should support missionaries and global workers regardless of where they are. But there is nonetheless a reality that for every dollar spent on missions, roughly one cent goes to unreached people groups. There's a great need for for workers in uh, areas that are, are least reached or unreached. And so... Let me just say, maybe that, you know, let me encourage you, support people going to the least reached peoples. Maybe that's someone your church already supports. Maybe that's someone new. If that's something that interests you, I have friends in the 1040 window. I'd love to put you in touch with them. Please talk to me after the service. Second, pray for the nations and pray for those going to them. If we're convinced of that kind of main driving point, if we're convinced that when people hear the gospel, they will believe in Jesus and be saved from all nations, let's pray like it. You might never be a missionary. You might never leave the country, but you can support global missions through prayer. Praying for the nations themselves, praying for missionaries, praying for people you support. There are a ton of fantastic resources to help you with this. Uh, Two that come to mind, Operation World, it's a book. You can pray for a different country every day of the year. Joshua Project is a website. It'll give you an unreached people group every day to pray for. Let me just encourage you to do this. Do this with your family. Adopt an unreached people group and just pray for them together every day. Teach your kids how to pray for the nations. Let's be a people who prays for the nations. Prayer is powerful. 
Let's take God at his word and pray that God will act among the nations. All right, third and finally, evangelize those around you. Right? We, we all have a mission field in our neighborhoods, our offices, our schools, your home. It's really easy to talk about missions as like this thing out there. Friends, missionaries are not the only people who should be practicing evangelism. If you're a Christian here this morning, you should be evangelizing too. I should be evangelizing too. We, we all should be evangelizing too. This might be the hardest of these three suggestions for me personally. Maybe it is for you. But friends, remember, we aren't called to evangelize on our own strength. No, when the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, when they hear the gospel, people will believe. So trust, not in your own strength, but in the power of God in the gospel to save sinners. Just like we were once saved by hearing the gospel also. Well, this morning we started with a problem. 40% of the world's population in people groups without access to the gospel. It seems like an impossible task to evangelize the nations. By human standards, it maybe is. But in God's economy, that number, it's nothing to fear. Rather, we must continue to faithfully fulfill the Great Commission, sending gospel preachers to the nations, Because we know that when the nations hear the testimony of God's salvation, people will believe. How do I know this? How can I be certain of this? Because 2,000 years after Jesus got up from the dead, we're still talking about it. On the other side of the globe, in Puyallup, Washington. And so I leave you with one final exhortation. Keep sending global workers Keep supporting gospel-centered global ministry and missions. Keep sharing your faith and the gospel with those around you. Keep trusting that the gospel is powerful enough to save. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are Lord over all nations. You are Lord over all the earth. We praise you because you have given us a wonderful story of salvation. Thank you, God, for the gospel. Thank you for the work of Christ on the cross for us. Thank you for his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to your right hand. Father, we pray that your salvation in Christ would be known throughout all the world. Uh, Father, I pray for Chapel Church, Lord, as they have missions, uh, dinner tonight, and fundraiser, Lord, may it be fruitful Uh, May this church be a church that prays well for missionaries and the nations. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.